so we're on our last series, the last um, sermon in the series of the new humanity. We've talked about being dreamers, unifiers, learners, diversifiers, innovators, worshipers. Last week we talked about being Sabbatarians and what that really, really meant. And today we're going to talk about what it means to be a storyteller. But you've got to remember the premise of this series, which is simply when God interacts with humanity, something new is made. And this is our last week. We could, we could continue on in this series talking about what God is making us into and how he wants to reveal himself to the world through us. And so he's literally making us into new humans, into a new humanity. But I thought we'd stop at storytellers because I think this is important. Um, Jesus was one who was wont to tell stories. He did it all the time. And the reason why I think that he told stories is because data changes heads, but stories change hearts. Now, my favorite storyteller, he's my favorite preacher, is um, Pastor Sam Lenore. Have you heard of him? Yeah, you guys know who he is. Sam has this way of telling a story, and you know this. Sam gets up, and before he starts talking, you're already like, oh. Oh, I actually was standing next to a guy at one project, not this last one, but a couple times ago. At the one project, Sam stood up, and he goes, that's what he did before he talked. And the guy next to me goes, he's magic. I was like, Serious? <laughs> seriously? <laughs> but then, then he did. Then he, Sam is this guy who walks up and, and for 30 minutes he, he breaks open his chest, which isn't so hard because he just broke six ribs. Um, he, he breaks, I don't tell him. And every time I talk about him, one of you monkeys, you text him. And you go, oh, Tim's talking about you. And I get a text like, hey, man, stop talking about me. So stop it. Stop telling on me. Um, um, but he opens up his chest and he shows you his heart and it's just beating out there. And you're brought in, right? The story, by the end of the story, you're in tears. You're with him. You know, I always expect him to at the end and go, and that's why you need to buy me a new car. And people will be like, yes, Sam, I'll buy you a new car. Thankfully, he uses his, you know, his magic powers apparently for good and not evil. But um, no, man, he's such a great storyteller because he, he brings you in. Jesus told parables because they serve as keys that can unlock the mysteries that we face by helping us ask the right questions. And see, that's the thing about a story. A story oftentimes is a lot more about the questions than it is about the answer, right? It asks us good questions. It asks us, how do, how do we live in community? How, how do we live in community? So many of the parables that Jesus told, the stories that he told, had to do with us living in community with one another. It asks us how to determine what ultimately matters in our life, right? They, they seem to get to the heart of the matter, even in a short parable, one or two verses, and you're right there, and it, it, it asks us how to live the life that God wants us to live. You know, these parables were Jesus' way of teaching, and they, they're remembered to this day, not simply because they're part of the Christian canon, but because they continue to provoke, they continue to challenge, and they continue to inspire us. You see, stories often tell us that which we already know but are resistant to recall, what was placed into us deep into our DNA about what, good, what is good, what is right, what is holy, but we are resistant to recall it because of the way we live our lives, because of the way we are, we are deeply distracted from the life that God is calling us to. And this is why the story works. It's not about moralizing, but it's an illustration to bring out what is in our heart already, placed there by God, by our upbringing, by the proximity we have to the people of God. And stories do a few things. 
Story houses, they have a way to engage us that simple data does not. You see, one of the things story does is story invites us. A story always invites us in to be a part of it. In fact, if I tell the first words of a, of a popular story, your head is right there, your heart is right there. Even a story as simple or a limerick as simple as Mary had a little lamb, you're already there. You're picturing the lamb. Whatever book you learned that with or your parents read to you when you were little, your head's already there. Stories invite us to be a part of something. But stories don't just invite, they confront us. Stories confront particularly in the stories that Jesus tells. We confront things like stereotypes, assumptions. We confront bias. We confront the human condition. And Jesus knew as he told these stories that he could do that because God doesn't play by our rules. Right? You get up, you're not supposed to say anything that's supposed to make people uncomfortable. Jesus didn't believe in that at all. In fact, he was so good at saying things that, that made people uncomfortable, they didn't know they were uncomfortable until they figured it out and wanted to kill him. That's how uncomfortable they became. Stories confront, but stories also convict. Jesus also seemed to know that stories can convict our hearts better than laws, than, better than commands can. Stories reach into our better selves to find our deepest impulses that should be exploding out from us as we are called the kingdom of God. But the problem is stories can be domesticated, right? Stories that were meant to roar like lions become little mews from a little house cat because we become so comfortable with them. And this is what happens when we move to allegory too quickly. This means that, that means this, this means that. Oh, we figured it out. We don't need to think about it anymore. We learn these stories when we're in the little seats. We learn these stories in Sabbath school and Sunday school. These are the stories and we go, oh, these are simple illustrations, simple ways that we can learn about who God is and how Jesus taught. That's not true. Have you read the parables? Half the time the disciples were like, we don't know. We have no clue what you just said. And Jesus is like, the story is simple. It's about this guy, he's sowing seeds. And they're like, yeah, but it doesn't make sense. He's sowing seeds all over the place. Like, yeah, he's a horrible farmer. Some on the road, some on the path, some on the rocks. Like, hit the field, man. It's a weird scene. We, and look, that's how comfortable we've come. We've just assumed the fact that he's throwing weeds, seeds everywhere and it's fine. It's not fine. If you worked on my farm and you did that, I'd be like, you're out because you apparently don't know what a field looks like. But we just accept these things because we heard them, we domesticate them. Oh, these aren't stories that change lives. These aren't stories that change the world. Actually, they are. They did, and they got them killed. Tell a story that makes people want to murder you. We almost can't. That's how subversive these stories became. You see, Jesus knew that the best teachings come from stories that make us laugh even as they make us uncomfortable. The prodigal son, right? The pearl of great price. The treasure in the field. We smile at and at the same time we wonder about these stories. Should we be sympathetic to the young man who left? Should we be sympathetic to his father or his brother? Do we want the widow to achieve her goal in the story? Should the rich man suffer even more do mustard seeds really have all that potential? Do we? All these stories sought to prepare people for the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven. He asked them to prioritize through these stories. What is your pearl of great price? What would you do if you found a treasure in a field? What would and should satisfy us? 
It was provocative and the provocation of the parables Jesus used should give us permission to tell our own stories in provocative ways. So we're gonna look at a story today. It's small. It's a parable of three verses, but really two, because the first one is the introduction. Mark 4.30, Jesus said, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? Yeah, we're used to this, right? Jesus goes, oh, I, I should tell you a story so you understand what it's like. And he goes, it's like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It's the smallest of all seeds. By the way, it's not the smallest of all seeds, right? Jesus was not making a scientific assertion there. There are actual seeds that are much smaller. But when he put it in his hand, he was like, that's a pretty small seed. And if you've put it in your hand, you know that that's a small seed. They're tiny. But it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches and birds can make nests in its shades. Mark calls it a garden plant. Matthew uses a different term. It reminds us of the saying when we hear the mustard seed, right? It reminds us of the saying that if we had the faith of a mustard seed, we could move mountains. So there's some connections there. But here's the thing. It's only two verses. But the parable of the mustard seed has quite a few branches of interpretation. There's two main branches, and then off those branches are a bunch of leaves of interpretation. It's two verses. This should be easy to understand. Oh, well, wait. The first branch of interpretation sees the parable, sees in the parable the theme of the contrast between small seed, large plant. Small seed, large plant. The second branch of interpretation concentrates not on size, but on the details of the imagery or the symbolic value of the mustard tree, the birds, the branches. But you see, each one of these branches gives way to other leaves of interpretation. Traditionally, we've seen it as a small seed, which suggests the miraculous growth of the kingdom, whether it's in our hearts, whether it's in the church, whether it's in society. From small, the kingdom grows big. That's pretty simple. And this is, of course, Christological in nature. You can put an interpretation on that. That's another leaf. This is, this is a calling of the, the Christology that they believed in, that the little work that Jesus did made a huge impact. His salvation, the small work of Jesus makes a huge impact. In other words, our small work that we do every single day, every mundane thing that we do that enters the kingdom of God into someone's life can have a huge impact, right? That's one way to look at it for sure. Or we focus not on the size of the seeds, this is moving to the other branch of interpretation, but on the elements of the parable. The mustard seed is despised, right? It was a despised thing because it was like a weed. It destroys the garden by taking over. We have a name for this in California. It's called a bougainvillea plant. Now, those of you who live in apartments, you don't know what I'm talking about, but when you purchase a home, there will be this demon seed called bougainvillea. It does not come from Jesus. Jesus does not love the bougainvillea plant. It is beautiful. It is beautiful, but it is evil. It has thorns about this long. And when it begins to take over, it takes over everything. And if you leave it to grow for say two or three years in your backyard, because you don't listen to your wife when she says, could you please go trim the bougainvillea plant? If that were to happen to you, not saying that it's happened to anyone else in the room, but if that were to happen for you, you would be in for the fight of your life and the bougainvillea plant will win. Handily. Right? They didn't like it. It was a weed. Right? And so you could say, well, the garden is the status quo. It's the empire, right? Or it's Judaism. Or it's everything not in agreement of the gospel. 
Or another leaf of, 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 of interpretation says that the birds are the most important thing. The birds serve as warnings to the upper classes who live off the toil of the poor cultivator. The mustard takes over and the birds move in. It's a warning to the upper class. Or you could interpret it that the mustard is a violation of Jewish laws concerning planting two crops in one space. The parables show how bad Jewish law actually is. And since the mustard seed is unclean and it takes over, then the Gentiles will do that to Judaism. The kingdom is open to the undesirable. Maybe that's what it means. Or maybe it's a commentary on the Jewish expectation of the kingdom coming in with a bang, but yet it doesn't. It comes in as a small seed before it takes over. So which interpretation is it? Two verses, friends. Which is right? Which is wrong? Or can we even use that binary of ones and zeros, right and wrong, when it comes to the interpretation of this text at all? Or do we have to think about it differently? It is a story. It is not a list. What's weird is that in contemporary culture of the time, nobody really talked about mustard seeds in ancient literature of the time. Why is this important? Because Jesus wasn't necessarily using a common story. This is one that he might have made up. In fact, later rabbinical writing in the first and second century would use the term mustard seed, but would only talk about it in very derisive terms. And they usually connected it with sexuality or sterility. And some people think that they were making fun of this Christian parable because they used the idea of the mustard seed. So is it about purity? Right? Some would argue, yes, tied together with the parable of the leaven, which is close to it, two types of plants in a garden, etc. But come on, probably not. Probably not. It seems to be about something else. And you know what? I can't get the image out of my head. What about the birds? Maybe we should go back to the birds. This is not just seed and tree and garden, but it's birds in the parable. Do they matter? You know, Daniel talks about birds taking shelter under the empire's branches. This is from Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Is it about empires? Would they have even known this in the first century? Is it that deep or not? Birds are not Gentile nations or are they Gentile nations? And what's weird is that mostly when Jesus mentions birds, you know what they are? Birds. Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but, some, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So what in the world are these two verses about? I, I, I think small to large is good. Like, I think that's an overarching theme, right? Great outcomes arrive from small beginnings. I think this is correct, but I think it's boring. It is. It's not super provocative right? But noting what outcomes happen when small grows large is a better provocation. Great outcomes arrive from small beginnings, but the provocation is that the mustard seed is a curative and one available to anyone. It's part of the good world that God gives us. Like the sun, which seems to insist on shining, the seed insists on growing to be used by anyone who finds the plant. Like the vast amounts of bread the woman baked in the parable of the leaven, the mustard plant offers more than a single person can even use. So the invitation to partake is universal. As the birds so neatly demonstrate, they all find shade. 
Instead of looking at the plant as a noxious weed, we might be better off seeing it as part of the gifts of nature that God gives. Something so small, allowed to do what it naturally does, producing prodigious effects. And the parable is about our own backyard. It's a domestic concern. The kingdom of heaven is found in our own backyard. The kingdom comes from the mundane, those things that you do, those little things that you do every single day, the way you smile, the way you talk, the way you interact, the way you send off an email, the way you send off a tweet or a Twitter or whatever we're supposed to call it, the way that you interact on Instagram and social media, every single one of those things somehow has a huge impact for the kingdom of God. And you see, Jesus used a story to say, to say that because a story invites discussion, right? Come into the interpretation rather than moralizing and sealing it up in a box. I used to preach back in my previous job and when I had really started preaching weekly, this girl came up one time and she said, Pastor Tim, I don't like what you've been doing. <laughs> preaching, because that's what I do. And she's like, yeah, I don't like it. It's changed. Because I had been doing some study and I'd been realizing that Jesus doesn't always give answers, but Jesus always gives invitations. And I said, well, what don't you like? And she said, well, I'm used to the blessing. I'm used to the blessing. I don't see the blessing. And I'm like, I don't know what the blessing is. What is that? And she said, well, you know, at the end of a sermon, you're supposed to like wrap it around, tie it in a little bow and hand it to me so I know what to take home. Like the blessing. And she's like, that way I can take it and I don't have to think about it anymore. And I was like, oh, well, I don't like to do that. And she said, why? And I said, because I don't think Jesus did. And she said, what? Yes, he did. And I was like, no, he didn't. Read the parables. And so I did. I took her to the parable of the sower. And I was like, do you see at the end, those people that were hanging out with him the whole time, they didn't understand. And she goes, yeah, yeah. But then, they, then he explained it to him. And I was like, yeah. And then they still didn't understand because they were not the brightest people on the planet. You see, we want the moralizing. We want the box to be tied up, especially us Americans. We don't even like watching foreign films. Foreign films may not tie it in a perfect bow at the end. And as Americans, we're like, what? It always has a happy ending. That movie should not get an Oscar. It made me feel bad. Right? Because we think feeling good about ourselves is the way that God wants us to be. That if we just, you know, if it's all wrapped up. And so, you know, you can go to a church and there's lots of pastors who do it. They'll let you feel good and you can walk out going, good, good sermon, pastor. I'm going to go eat lunch and never think about you again until I have to come back next week. I want to be in your hearts on Tuesday. I want you to be like, I did not like what he said. And I think he said it to me. And if you think I said it to you, I did. <laughs> Through the Holy Spirit, because I may not know who you are. But listen, a story, a story is better because it confronts common assumptions the same thing that you've been looking at forever, you may see completely differently because when God interacts with humanity, something new is made. You see, you may think differently about the same thing that you've been looking at forever. Every, every parable tells the truth, but every parable tells it slant. A story can convict the heart of the hearer if one has ears to hear. Yes. But we don't always have ears to hear, do we? No, because we think we know. We think we know what it means. We think we've understood it. It's simple. These are simple stories. Why not? So let me ask you this question. What story is God telling through you? What's the parable that God is telling through you? How are you interacting with the story of God? 
Because we've been called to tell stories and we've been called to tell better stories. We've been called to tell stories of the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like in our lives. You know, we weren't given a list. We weren't given a manual. We have a full industry, right? The Oscars are about to happen. We have, we have a full industry that's based on storytelling. And the world has gotten quite good at storytelling. Why do we still approach our story like it's a manual? When was the last time you read a manual for a new piece of technology that you got? Now, I know there's some engineering types who are like, of course, that's what it, I got something new. I have to learn how to use it. The rest of us human beings don't act like that. The rest of us are like, I'll just push a button. It should work. Right? We don't sit and read manuals and we never give Oscars to the story of the manual of your videotape machine. We give Oscars to the best stories, to the most powerful stories, the most amazing stories. And when they become our stories, they mean something different. I was, I was doing a week of prayer. Some of you have heard this story before. I was doing a week of prayer and I was about to baptize a young man on, on Sabbath. Um, it might have been Friday night, I can't remember, but I believe it was on Thursday. We've been doing Bible study together and the Passion of the Christ came out that week. And he said, Pastor Tim, I'd love to see that with you. So we talked to his parents, they were cool with it. So we went and watched The Passion of the Christ. Now, if you've seen that movie, you don't have to agree with the way it was expressed with Mel, what Mel Gibson did, but it was powerful. I don't care if you don't like it, it was powerful. There were times you were like, this needs to stop because I'm hyperventilating, like this is too much. You, covered in sweat. Just, you know, it was, a, it was a trial to get through that movie. And this kid is about to be baptized. He's so on fire for Jesus Christ. So he's experiencing all that with me. You know, it stops and we just sit there, right? You can't leave. Finally, the credits are done. They kick us out. So we're walking out and there was a girl behind us talking to her friends who I guess had been at the movie. So I'm walking with this young gentleman and, um, and she goes, oh my goodness, I don't even know what that movie was about. <laughs> And just to be clear, we were in the valley, so it was appropriate that she would sound like that. And, and she, was, she was like, I don't even know what it was about. There was like no storyline to it. And, and I look at this kid, and his head is about to explode. Like, he's angry. Like, you could see him, like, balling up his fist. And, and she's like, I don't even know why. Like, it wasn't even fun. There was no, I didn't laugh one time. And like, no, we, no, we didn't laugh. And this kid and I just grab him because he was about to turn around and like witness <laughs> right but it may not have been the best time um, so I grab him and I go man not her story it's not her story it's not her story she doesn't understand it's not her story until it becomes her story she won't get it it's your story it's your story now what we just watched was your story and we can even tell it better than that because you get to tell it through your life every single day. The parable that you live yes, is a way that people encounter Jesus Christ yes, through you, for them, through Christ, through you. This is the way that it works. So what story are you telling? Because the new humanity tells stories to keep the story going. Stop explaining God to people. Stop taking the lists and checking it off as they finally agree with you. That is not how we tell a better story. The way that we tell a better story is to lean into the story God is creating through our lives. It's to take these stories of scripture and to break them open. And when they say, what does it mean? Go, I don't know today. But maybe we can find out together because it is an invitation into the kingdom of God. This is what this is. So let us not be 
overwhelmed by making sure we get everything right. Those checklists are exhausting. Nobody likes them. But what we need to do is live the story that God is creating in our lives. The new humanity tells our story to keep the story going. So that's why we stop at the end of this, because I, I, I don't know what story God is telling through you, but I know that it's something people have to keep going back to and asking about and engaging in. It's a story that confronts. It's a story that invites. It's a story that convicts. So today, I want you to think at some point today in your quieter moments, whenever that is, I want you to think, God, what story are you telling through me? And what is the story of you that I make sure I tell? Yes, sir. Because you have been invited not only into the kingdom, but to be the expansion of the kingdom so that people might know who Jesus is through you and maybe only through you because there is someone that no one else can touch but you through your story. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, God of grace, God of mercy, God of power, and God of the story, may our story be woven into yours in a tapestry that is so dense it can never be extricated, that it is so deeply held within your heart and your narrative that it is the same story. And Lord, let us speak it again and again. Let us never tire of it. Let us plumb the depths of understanding of what it really is. We ask these things in your holy name, Lord. In the name of Jesus, amen.